This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Welcome today to the first of our seminars focusing on dealing with past in Northern Ireland. Um, it's uh, an initiative from the Transitional Justice Institute in core at Ulster University uh, with our partners Healing Through Remembering uh, and also with myself. Uh, I'm the John Human Thomas Peoneal Chair in Peace at Ulster University. Uh, we had actually planned uh, the seminar series uh, to be face-to-face -face, and we had about 10 seminars lined up uh, working very closely with Healing's Remembering on this um, and then as obviously everybody knows uh, the situation changed quite profoundly over the last while and so we've moved these seminar series uh, online so you're all uh, really welcome uh, and it's great to have you all here uh, interestingly, I think uh, we have a probably much larger audience by moving online, so that's been a, a positive. Uh, look, sitting in front of me now, I can see a figure of 95 people are live on this session. Uh, we had about 150 registers, so maybe more will be popping uh, in and out. Um, so that's fantastic. Um, feel free if you want to, uh, by way of starting uh, in the chat box. You're welcome to say hello and where you're joining us from. Uh, we'd uh, be delighted to to see some of that so feel free to say hi to us. Um, the seminar series itself is particularly looking as I mentioned about dealing with the past in Northern Ireland uh, and specifically as many of you know there were commitments made after the power sharing arrangements were re-established to implement the Stormont House Agreement. Um, now of course COVID-19, Brexit, many other things have presented a range of challenges to that happening uh, but the debate is continuing and uh, moves are afoot to start to look at what to do around issues of dealing with uh, dealing with the past. Um, this is not new as many of you know it's been going on for literally decades now but what we hope to do in the seminar series is provide a range of different perspectives uh, on the issue of dealing with the past. And as you all know, the seminar today will be Dr. Adrian Grant uh, from the university, from Ulster University, and he will be talking on uh, breaking binary history. Uh, can the Storm and House Agreement facilitate a broader and more representative understanding of the past? And so, Adrian, you're really welcome. Uh, as I said to everybody, uh, we now have close to 100 participants online, so that's not an easy thing to manage. Um, so what we'd like to do is just ask everyone to please mute themselves and their video um, and to to listen in uh, and to use the chat facility if you want to make contact. Um, Adrian is going to speak for about 30 to 40 minutes um, and then we'll open it up for questions uh, and we'll probably moderate the questions or we will moderate the questions through the through the chat facility um, just to to make it a little bit a little bit easier um, so yeah, once again welcome to everybody it's great to have 100 people online uh, it feels rather surreal when you can't quite see everybody but it's fantastic that everyone is there and so i'm now going to ha hand over to dr adrian grant who's going to speak to us about whether the storm and house agreement can facilitate a broader and more representative understanding of the past 
so thanks very much and uh, off you go adrian thank you very much brandon and thank you to everyone who has joined us um it's really encouraging to see such large numbers of people interested in the topic um so i'm really going to talk to you about social history and oral history today um and i think it's something a little bit different to what we what we expect or what we are used to when, we, when we're thinking about dealing with the past particularly in northern ireland um so the purpose of my presentation today is really to provoke thought i suppose on on how we think about history in ireland and the north of ireland um in particular over the last 50 to 60 years do we automatically go to the binary history the us versus them type history um it's my opinion that we tend to do that both as sort of members of the public um and as historians as well actually if, if we're looking at the the broader profession of of history on this island um so i suppose the purpose of the paper is to provoke some thought in terms of of broadening out um how we understand the last 50 to 60 years in the north of ireland the second part of what I'm trying to do, I suppose, is to see if that fits in with the structures that are being put in place in terms of how we deal with the past and how our political institutions deal with the past. So the Stormont House Agreement is the mechanism that is there, that's broadly agreed, <clears throat> and that's moving towards implementation, um, both now and over the next months and years when, when uh, when things return back to relative normality. Um, I've been staring at my my own slide, opening slide here for the last half an hour. Um, so it's, I've kind of been looking at this, staring at this photograph, which I haven't really looked at in detail before using today. Um, but it sort of sums things up quite a bit, I think, um, when you look at the detail of it. So this is a housing estate called Belmont in Derry. It's on the city side of Derry and it was built by the Northern Ireland Housing Trust in the 1950s. Um, like many Northern Ireland Housing Trust properties, security force personnel um, were predominant, but um, quite prominent, I would say, in, in those who took up those kind of uh, public housing projects. The rents were a little bit more, more expensive than corporation housing. Um, and those with higher salaries could tend to reside in those estates. The interesting thing about Belmont is being on the city side of Derry, it's now almost exclusively, if not totally exclusively, a Catholic estate. Um, and this photograph is of a, an 11th bonfire. Um, I don't know the exact year, but it looks late 50s, early 60s. <coughs> The significance of that for me is this could be a photograph of any public housing estate in the north of Ireland um, in the 50s or 60s. These type of community bonfires, very small, key, sort of small scale, low key affairs that were essentially community gatherings and community building exercises for, for small groups of people were common in both Catholic and Protestant areas. So this estate, which has just seen a, a huge change in the population. 
which has seen a huge change in its population over the last 50 years. <clears throat> kind of sums up a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today in terms of how we look at social history um, and how reconceptualizing the past um, and the modern history of Ireland um, can help us actually get to a stage where we broaden out our understandings and move beyond that us and them binary history of the North. So um, here's a basic outline of what I'm going to talk to you about. So the Stormont House Agreement, it's pretty important that I just outlined in very basic terms what uh, the, the commitments were in terms of oral history um, as a means of uh, as a means of, of uh, addressing the legacy of the conflict. Um, and then I'll talk to you a little bit about um, you know what is oral history, where it where it came from and how it's developed in the modern period, um, and then a little bit on oral histories of conflict, which is an even more modern methodology and and use of of the methodology. Um, probably a, a, a sort of a 21st century phenomenon. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit more and talking about um, a little bit of current research that I'm working on with Brandon actually and David Coyles and Pete Hodson at Ulster University um, called Historical Urbanism uh, and basically we're using the city of Derry as a case study to explore how regen urban regeneration and housing regeneration in particular in the 50s, 60s and 70s impacted on neighbourhoods, communities and people how it changed how the people move around the city, interact with each other, uh, and how people think about the past and think about their own heritage. Um, so I'll speak to you a little bit about that because um, it kind of illustrates a lot of what I'm talking about when I talk about going beyond the binary history and then using what you find from that to kind of reinterpret the troubles, reinterpret the conflict, and how we how we think about it historically. Then I'll go back to the Stormont House Agreement um, and look again at, at, at the, the commitments to the legacy issues within it um, and weigh up you know, whether this type of approach to history can, can fit within the structures of the agreement um, or whether it's wishful thinking to, to, actually, to actually propose doing something like this. Um, and finally, obviously, then I'll, I'll sum up and conclude what I've been speaking about. So the Stormont House Agreement, uh, many of you on online will, will know this in detail, but for those who are um, less familiar with the detail of the agreement, you can see on the left-hand side of the screen, um, clauses 22 to 25 are the kind of relevant ones for oral history. So the executive, well, it was in 2014, the commitment was it would establish by 2016 an oral history archive to provide a central place for people from all backgrounds and throughout the UK and Ireland to share experiences and narratives related to the troubles. Um, so the agreement committed to establish this oral history archive, an official oral history archive of the conflict, and to collect new material as well as gather up. Um, existing oral history projects. So uh, the sharing of experiences was to be entirely voluntary. 
um, protect, uh, contributors were to be protected. Um, and in clause 24, the archive will be independent and free from political interference. And then 25 is kind of an allied clause. It goes beyond the oral history archive, but uh, states that a research project will be established as part of the archive led by academics to produce a factual historical timeline and statistical analysis of the troubles to report within 12 months. Obviously, none of this has happened as far as I'm aware. Um, and it was quite ambitious to, to, actually, to actually commit to doing so, uh, in my opinion, within to have a, a, an oral history archive of such scale operating within a statistical timeline within 12 months. Um, obviously, there are a lot of people already doing this work, and there's a lot of community oral histories. Um, the Ulster University through NCOR um, started some of this work in 2013, 2014 with the Accounts of the Conflict project to bring some of the archives uh, some of the oral history archives together online. Um, but it was still a, still quite a quite an ambitious program um, of measures to actually have implemented within the time period. So it's not surprising that they they didn't they didn't meet those deadlines, regardless of the fact that there was a lot of disagreement between the political parties on it. <clears throat> One of the problems I think is that um, Oral history as a means of dealing with the past is seen as easier or um, a, a less problematic way of doing this than say a truth commission um, or something that has been sort of tried elsewhere in terms of offering amnesties and everything that goes along with that. But when we get into the, the detail of it, um, it, it, it's not quite as simple as it, as it seems. So there's a couple of things I've, I've picked out here that I think are interesting. In clause 22 there, there's sort of stuff about representation. So all backgrounds are to be represented um, and experiences and narratives related to the troubles is the phrase um, used. So it's, it's pretty vague. Um, what does all backgrounds mean, for instance? For, for example, does that, does that follow the kind of um, peace process, language of unionist, nationalist and other, um, or does it provide us with that kind of rainbow myriad categorization of backgrounds um, where you can self-identify? Um, does it include new, new members of the Northern Ireland population, uh, migrants and so forth? Um, so that's all very much um, vague and open to interpretation, but it provides the basis to talk about, um, you know, a broader idea of what the history of, of Northern Ireland is. And then experiences and narratives related to the troubles. Again, it's quite vague. What does that actually mean? I would argue that all experience, all narratives, um, you know, anything that kind of took place in that time period within the north of Ireland, um, and by that I mean the six counties and and the border counties, <clears throat> you know, is is relevant as being related to the troubles, um, because you can't really understand a violent conflict without understanding its con its social context, the economic context, political context, 
um, and the everyday lived experience of both conflict, conflict events as we understand them and events outside of the conflict. I think everything is interlinked. So if we talk about experiences and narratives related to the troubles, um, I, would, I would conceptualize that as being a very, very broad phrase. Um, the remit is to collect new material and draw together and work with existing projects. So that's quite a, another big commitment. Um, the material that's out there already is quite broad. So you have everything from, um, you know, representations from victims groups, for example, um, ex-prisoners organizations, border communities, um, some everyday experience type projects, um, right down to sort of trade unions that have done a lot of work, uh, oral history work with their members, across then to segregated communities, communities living in the shadow of peace walls and that kind of thing. So there's, there's a lot of stuff already there. Um, the collection of new material is the more um, contentious bit, I think, because again, you get to that point of how do you define experiences and that related to the troubles. Um, and the final point I'm taking out of this is the idea of independence and objectivity. And uh, so we're free from political interference. So there's designs here on, on objectivity. Um, the phrase free from political interference, it's difficult to kind of justify that given that the archive was to be placed within a government department. Uh, and you have the idea of a statistical analysis and a factual historical timeline. A historical timeline is, isn't something that really can be factual because it's it, it's always going to be interpretive. Um, again, it goes back to my original proposition of what is an experience or narrative related to the troubles. In, coming to, in, in bringing a timeline together, yes, facts can be used, but you still have to choose the fact. It goes back to E.H. Carr's um, uh, his um, his thinking on on the historian's craft as being like fishing in a in a in a, in a vast ocean. Um, you'll only catch a certain type of fish, um, and if you use a certain type of swim in a certain type, or you fish in a certain part of the sea, then you'll catch different fish. And the same thing happens with facts. So it's based on your social background, your political thinking. Um, you will find the facts that suit you. So factual historical timeline is, is sort of a, not quite a contradiction in terms, but it's not as clear cut as it sounds. So those are the things that I wanted to just outline at the start so that we're, when I'm talking about the social history content and the oral history here, that I'm gonna come back to this at the end and try to relate some of it back and see if what I'm talking about actually relates to the Stormont House Agreement um, or if I'm completely wide of the mark and, and in actually proposing this this idea at all. Okay, so oral history. Um, I'm going to give you a brief background on, on oral history. Um, I don't need to go into too much detail here, I don't think, on the development of the of the movement. Um, but I mean, oral history has been, I suppose, of history. It's the, history, it's the first kind of history that existed. It was there before written records, people passing stories, customs and traditions from generation to generation. 
So some of the earliest written sources of history, say from the fifth century BC, Greece, for example, are based on eyewitness testimonies. So this idea of recording people's testimonies and memories, and then using that to understand our past, goes back much further than, than documentary history or written history. But oral history and the oral tradition fell out of favour when, um, when the development of print technology really took off, and particularly then with the developments in communication te technology allied to that. So as the written word spread, um, you know, the, the, the power of, of the vocal transmitted oral word began to decline. And the written word was held, held in much respect. And when, the, when, when, when history became professionalized, so, you know, when it became a professional thing to actually sit down and write history, um, it was around about that same time as, a, as a, an explosion in the, in the communications technology took place in the, the mid 19th century. So mass produced newspapers, daily newspapers, um, the development of rail transport um, and the, the ability to transmit the written word um, across countries in, in days rather than weeks and months as had been previously. Uh, and of course that continues on and on then with telegraph technology and, and everything else. But the result was that written sources and written history um, became much more respectful. Than So um, it was only then in the 1960s that um, the oral history tradi tradition came back to prominence. And I'll talk about a little bit about that in a second. But before I do that, I just wanted to, to comment briefly on the role of archives um, and how archives in relation to oral history sources can be seen as sort of the top of a hierarchy of historical sources. So it comes again from that 19th century idea of the written word as being sacrosanct for historians. Um, and we have to think about, about archives in that way, that they're, they're seen as more authoritative sources because they are you know, documentary evidence of, of events that took place in a particular time period. But Again, they are subjective in their way. There are power relations at work here. Um, there are the social backgrounds of the people who wrote them. Um, and there's the intention of what, what they were trying to do. So states are not objective entities any more than a person is an objective entity. So there are problems here around having a hierarchy of historical sources. There are obviously problems with oral history, the subjectivity of memory, but there are also problems with written sources um, and the subjectivity of institutions. So the role of the state really in creating archives um, is, is interesting when you look at it in a little bit more detail. Um, obviously the justification and perpetuation of the state is its goal. Um, so sometimes the archive can be used in a way that supports that. So for instance, um, Archives are 
a selection, small selection in most cases, of the actual written documents of a government department. Most of those um, written documents are destroyed. Um, others are retained by the government departments and never released. Others are released 50, 100, 200, and many more years later. Um, some are recalled from the archives for sensitivity reasons, and others are lost or lost in inverted commas. Uh, so archives should never really be viewed as a, an entirely objective source. So it's important to spell that out at the start that archives aren't unproblematic in the same way that oral history is problematic. A couple of examples here of um, why oral history is important. Two books, two very interesting books for anyone who would like to do a little bit of extra reading. Um, Ian Cobain, Guardian journalist, wrote this book, The History Thieves, a few years back. Um, that's really a, an exploration of um, the British government's treatment of, of its archives of um, the colonial past. Um, lots of stories in there of um, the burning of records um, and the migrating of archives. So in other words, taking the archives of a colonial regime in large scale and transporting them back to the UK um, so that the, the people in the in the, um, the colonies couldn't see couldn't see them whenever the, the um, post-colonial governments were formed. <clears throat> Second book here is Imperial Reckoning by Caroline Elkins. Um, okay so I was speaking about Caroline Elkins book Imperial Reckoning. So Elkins um, had written a, a book that used oral history of the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya. Um, and the book was, or the research was kind of slated because it didn't match with the, the, the archival record, um, which said that, you know, that these stories of torture were exaggerated or untrue in a large part. Um, but um, Elkins was kind of justified um, well, not Elkins, but Elkins and, and her interviewees, and obviously the people and the victims themselves were justified. Um, when they brought a court case, um, uh, which eventually resulted in uh, the office suddenly discovering a file of uh, millions of documents in a warehouse in Milton Keynes, which showed that you know, so many of the files have been destroyed um, and then either migrated to Milton Keynes um, or, or lost in other places. But basically the, the oral testimony had been justified or had been vindicated by the discovery of these um, extra files. So it's a very interesting case um, if anyone wants to sort of read that in more detail. Um, I'm conscious of how much time I have here today, so I want to get into the the um, the, the research itself um, and the Northern Ireland specific stuff. But these two examples are are quite interesting for problematizing archives in relation to um, oral histories. Okay, so very briefly, the the history of oral history really um, takes off in in, in 1960s. So having been out of favour for you know hundreds and hundreds of years, um, 
oral history comes back to practice in the 1960s. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is the availability of portable tape recorders. So as it becomes possible to actually carry a tape recorder with you, um, people begin recording each other's stories and memories. Um, and there are a number of particular avenues that that takes um, and what comes from, from activism. So, um, I mean, folklore studies had been following these trajectories for quite some time anyway. Um, and when, when it became possible to record people portably, then recording people's customs, traditions, and language became a huge part of folklore studies. <clears throat> and then in history, it was local historians, really, and community historians who began using oral history as a serious tool um, to discover local history because the, the kind of archives you get at a state level aren't always readily accessible or even existing uh, at a local level. Um, but then um, with the working class, especially in the women's issue, um, oral history became very, very prominent and started making its way into academia. So the 1960, late 60s, early 70s saw the development of the field of labor history or working class studies um, in history. Um, and by its very nature, the written documentary evidence is very slight um, in working class labor history. So you tend to get trade union records, you tend to get business records um, and interactions with political parties, but you don't get that uh, everyday um, experience, diaries, etc., from working class studies that you would say from studying governments or politicians. Um, so people began documenting each other's stories through that new field of labor history. The women's movement was the same then. Um, there was a recognition that the sources and the written archival sources were silent on, on women's history, and so new sources had to be created. Um, as we go into the 1970s then, um, that idea of filling the gap, filling those historical silences and using oral history to do so becomes more prominent. Um, so all sorts of uh, minorities began using it as a tool to, um, to have their voices heard. Um, and it goes down the road then in the 80s and onwards into um, capturing the history of identity. <clears throat> Um, something that's very difficult to capture through the written word. <clears throat> so how people feel, etc., about their identity. So into the 90s and then into the 2000s, you know, oral history is becoming more firmly established with some academic historians. Um, a slow process, some, some still don't recognize its, its value. Um, I feel that it's still very, very prob problematic. Um, but um, it did change how we conceptualize history from the 1970s onwards, because it's a, it's a community grass-based movement. It's broadened our conception of, of history and has uh, inspired new kind of, um, new avenues of, of exploration. So it has created a diversity within history. Um, and one of its greatest, greatest powers is challenging dominant narratives. Okay, oral histories of conflict is a, a more recent development. Um, so, 
So um, people have begun using oral history as a methodology for both documenting, understanding, and dealing with the legacy of conflict. So it is quite a good tool for, for documenting and understanding conflict. Um, you know, you can get to the the foot soldier or the, the civilian victim um, of conflict that you may not see in the archive or in the written word or in newspapers or anything like that. Um, so it does provide more context and nuance to histories of, of conflict by using oral history as this kind of methodology, just really to, to get um, a more rounded view of the past and to get at a greater understanding of the past. But then there's another side of this, which is dealing with the legacy of conflict. So using oral histories as a means of um, you know, addressing legacy issues that, like those we see in uh, Northern Ireland. Um, so oral history is seen as both a product and a process sometimes in these situations. A product in that we get a, a tapestry of memory um, that theoretically we can we can bring together into an archive and use it as a as a, a tapestry of opinions that taken together can bring us towards some form of um, completeness when we're looking at the history of a contested idea or a contested place. That's the kind of theory of, of using a wide range of oral histories as a means of dealing with the legacy of conflict. It's also a process in that um, some would say there's a therapeutic um, element to actually allowing people to tell their stories in, in a similar way to, to how people have felt about what a, what a Truth and Reconciliation Commission might achieve for, for individuals and for victims. Um, there's a feeling that there's a catharsis in, in telling stories and it's more safely done in the oral history context, um, given that the, the, the person telling their story has a, an element of control if it's done right. So, um, Mary Marshall Clark is one of the leading people in this field of, of using oral history to document and interpret conflict. So this quote kind of sums up what I've been saying, you know, that it ensures people and communities whose voices are suppressed and who have little access to media and other forums are treated as full historical subjects. So oral histories of conflict over time um, have come to be seen as an effective way of understanding conflict and this has led to their use um, in mechanisms to address uh, conflict legacy issues. Now, it's my point here, I suppose, that um, that we can use oral histories to broaden out how we understand past events. Um, and I'm briefly going to talk about the Irish Revolutionary Period, 1912 to 23 here, um, to show how oral history and the release of oral histories over the last decade have changed, massively changed how we um, approach that, that historical moment in Irish history. So uh, a huge range of oral histories have been released, both by the Irish government um, through its Bureau of Military History project, um, which allowed veterans of the conflict to, um, to tell their stories in the 1950s, and they were just released in the last uh, 
10 to 15 years. <clears throat> there was also a lot of private um, oral history projects that took place at that time, including by Ernie O'Malley, a very prominent veteran who interviewed his former comrades, um, and in the north of Ireland by Father Louis O'Kane, uh, a Catholic priest from, um, from Ochnacloy, who uh, travelled around the northern counties of Ireland, interviewing veterans of the of the War of Independence period. And it has the release of these tapes and, and oral histories has completely changed how we understand that period in Irish history. Um, there has been an allied move towards social history, the social history of that period, which has entirely opened up interpretations of events um, at that time. Um, so with the with the move into social history on the one hand and the the um, the opening up of the oral history archive on the other, we've completely reconceptualized the history of that period, so much so that um, the chronology has actually changed. It used to always be 1916 to 23, it's now 1912 to 23. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One of the main ones has been bringing in the unionist tradition um, and looking at the Ulster Covenant and the formation of the Irish or the Ulster Volunteer Force. But then also the social and labour element of bringing in the Dublin lockout of 1913 so that we could get a broader understanding of, of this decade um, with the, the First World War and everything else. <clears throat> so the result of this change, this revision of uh, Irish history in the 1912 to 23 period has been a greater understanding of both social and economic history, of labour history and the contribution of workers and trade unions to how Ireland changed at that time. Women's history um, has, has blossomed really in the last 10 to 20 years in this particular time period. Um, there's been some fantastic work done. Local and regional disparity, local studies of this period have shown you know, that we can entirely reassess how we understand the events of the decade. Um, the experience in the North, which was kind of almost forgotten about by, by historians when they wrote about these sort of glorious years of, of Irish independence um, and this sort of sectarian warfare that took place in the six counties from 1920 to 1922, um, despite its destruction, um, has been largely um, forgotten about until quite recently. Um, LGBT histories are beginning to be written about the time period. Um, and then one for for the um, that's quite interesting in, in the in the situation we face today, the impact of the Spanish flu of 1918 and 19 um, on Ireland at that time has been fantastically um, chronicled through oral history and other sources by Dr. Ida Milne. Um, it was a fantastic book um, just published a few years ago on the very topic. So we can see that there is a there's potential here for how broader social history and the use of oral history in that regard can allow us to reinterpret conflict histories. So um, the War of Independence period, the Irish Revolutionary period, now being rethought, revised um, and reconceptualized in the public mind because of the access we have to all of these sources and all of these new histories of the wider context. So with the time I have left, uh, I'd like to concentrate on um, 
some of the research that, that I and others have been doing in the city of Derry over the last few years to try and um, follow through on this, to try and focus in on the social history of communities um, as a contribution to understanding the history of the Troubles more broadly. So the project is called Historical Urbanism, um, Shaping Cities Through Historical Research. Um, the whole other aspect to the project in terms of um, engaging with urban design in the contemporary period and in the, in the present day that I won't get into. I'm going to concentrate more on the, the, uh, the historical research side of it for, this, for the purposes of this talk. Um, but the project uses oral history to speak with people about the spaces in which they have lived their lives. Um, and we, we try to get at how those spaces have changed over time and how those significant changes have impacted on people's lives. Um, the thing is that all of this stuff we're talking about uh, happened at the same, just before or at the same time as, as the troubles began and were at their height. So there's a almost like a, a twin trauma thing going on here where you have the severe obvious trauma of a violent conflict um, but you also have this underlying change creating a, a, a different type of trauma that's buried both buried personally buried by society and then buried in the historical record because of the all-encompassing nature of, of the troubles so what we're finding is that um, people's reactions to and people's um, yeah people's reactions to change in physical space. So the clearance of large areas of housing, the building of new infrastructure, and the modernization of, of cities in the 60s and 70s has had a particular impact, um, a negative impact in many cases on how people view that process and, and view how they live today. So this photograph is from um, the part of the bauxite in Derry. It's not far from Free Derry Corner, which most of you will know. Um, it's taken from the Lecky Road, looking up at And this was a, a sort of a thriving part of the city, large population, tightly knit, terraced streets. Um, <clears throat> the church, the local school, the houses and the shops were all sort of a, an insulated community. Um, and uh, the modernization process meant that there was need for a traffic uh, bypass to get from the city to the hospital on the other side of the river. Um, and this uh, flyover uh, was constructed. It's quite small in relative terms. Uh, and this is the artist's impression of it before it was built. Um, I should have a photo of what it looks like today, but uh, some of you might know it anyway. But the impact of this was absolutely massive and the reverberations of it are still going through um, the neighborhood and the, the diaspora of that neighborhood today. So the houses were cleared, new road was built. The church, as you can see in the top right of the screen, is sort of cut off from the rest of the community. Um, there was really great pedestrian access here in any way, shape or form um, and has become something of, a, of an eyesore, the, the flyover itself in recent years. 
So just a couple of extracts from interviews here, and you can see what I'm talking about whenever I, I say that it had a, a major impact on people um, and neighborhoods and families. So this is a female interviewee from uh, from the area who says, now the flyover was an absolute mistake. I've no doubt about that. How can you justify tearing a community away from the church? The church was the heart of the community. It was the center of focus, the long tower. But to rip the long tower entrance gates steps away from the houses that lived around it, there could have been a way around that. So people still feel very, very strongly about this. They feel that their access to um, a part of the city they saw as theirs has been has been um, has been stripped away. Another person who lived in the shadow of the church, um, or whose grandparents somebody lived in the shadow of the church, remembers their experience um, of when their house was being invested to be cleared, and they had to move into the new accommodation that was being built in the bog side. Um, and this is a, this is a, an emotional one where they all went to their new new apartment um, with all mod cons, indoor plumbing, gas heating, electric heating, or whatever it was, television, all the rest. Um, and they sat and had fish and chips. So I said to Maureen, Maureen was the aunt, um, and she started to cry. We had to sit in the car. This is Maureen. We had to sit in the car. So Laurie was sitting outside the door, ready to break up the windows and break up the door whenever they left. She kept the key. She had the key in her hand. And she said, we had to sit and watch them. And that was her grandmother's house. That was where her mother was reared. There was an emotional, a huge emotional impact here in the process of urban redevelopment. Um, and the point I think to make about that is that um, when we look at the history of Northern Ireland in this period, we tend to focus on the troubles of And by doing that, we overlook some other things. And this is one of those things, urban redevelopment and its negative impacts. We tend to look at the civil rights movement uh, and the terrible housing conditions that people lived in. Uh, and we see that there was a massive redevelopment scheme, huge investment in housing, the construction of new housing at an unbelievable rate, and the creation of the housing executive. And there's this sort of positive narrative of, of that, that thing being resolved. Um, but what we're finding is that you know it had this human impact, uh, and it had an impact on on these neighbourhoods, on these families, and on these communities that isn't always appreciated. Um, so that's that's kind of the, one of the main findings that's that's coming out of um, that's coming out of this project um, that people are reconceptualising, or people are. People are giving us the chance to to think deeper about, you know, what was happening during the troubles that wasn't about the violence and the politics, but the kind of everyday lived experience that was going on um, and taken away in the background. Um, the things that we would, in a normal society, focus in on um, if we were writing the history, uh, tend to get buried when we look at Northern Ireland. Okay, I'm going to skip on a little bit, and it's probably time to come back to some of what I was going to say in the in the discussion. Um, but my concluding points, I suppose, are <coughs> excuse me, are that there is potential in the Stormont House Agreement to bring in this kind of social history element um, as a means of 
understanding the conflict uh, in a much more thorough way. Um, it's my firmly held um, conviction that we can't understand the conflict unless we understand everything that was going on around it. And the everyday lived experience of the conflict is massively important. So it's the mundanity of everyday experience, of moving house, of struggling to, to get by, to get your everyday essentials that informs how you remember the conflict, and how you, how society really collectively remembers it. So is there potential there within that line of experience and narratives related to the troubles, given that it's quite vague? Um, the question I have to pose is, are there dangers here in um, losing the grassroots nature of oral history? Oral history has been um, a, a grassroots-led movement in terms of uh, the Northern Ireland case of dealing with the past. So will there be some element of state control and oversight or even just a loss of, of agency for, for ordinary um, people? Um, and finally, is there a limited scope here? So is it wishful thinking to believe that this official oral history archive facilitate the kind of history that I've been speaking of here? Um, I think it probably is. I think um, if something like this does get up and running, that the concentration will be on the type of history that's that's kind of accepted as being normal here. Um, and to push beyond that will be seen as superfluous um, to, the, the, to the requirements of, of dealing with the past. Um, but as you can tell from what I've been seeing here, I would argue otherwise, that you have to bring all this stuff in in order to, to understand history in a more thorough way. Okay, I'm gonna leave it there because I realize that we want to have some time for discussion um, and I'm happy to come back to anything that um, was of interest to you there and speak in more detail about it. So thank you, everyone. Right, well, thanks uh, very much, Adrian. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, a lot of detail uh, in, in the talk um, and you raised a, a range of different issues. So I am going to just open this up for questions. Uh, most of you will see at the bottom, uh, there's a little icon of a person with their hand up in the air. If you would like to ask a question, if you could maybe push that icon um, and then I will uh, send you a message and you can quickly draft down your question. So if you can, in the meantime, be just typing your questions down and then you can put them up and I will try and put them in some order. Uh, we'll just do the questions uh, via the text and then Adrian will ask, answer in an order in, uh, you know, either visually or, audibly in, or in audio. Uh, it'll just be a little bit easier uh, that way. Okay. <clears throat> right, I'm just trying to get the questions here, so just hold on a second. So I have a um, request there from Robin. It's very nice to hear from Robin. Um, so, Robin, I'm just sending you a quick message. Um, if you can just type your question and the response to that, that would be great. Is there anyone else? Okay, we'll be with the questions shortly.
I think actually uh, the easiest might be if you have your questions to maybe just put them into the main chat and I'll work from there. That might be easier. Uh, while I wait for Robin, uh, there's a question there, Adrian, um, which says, I'm an absolute, from Sean Feenan, I'm an absolute supporter of oral history, but where, where do we stand now where the Stormont House Agreement has been overtaken by the new decade, new approach? Um, I could be wrong in this, but as far as I'm aware, um, the new decade, new approach um, agreement kind of uh, commits to implement the Stormont House Agreement. So, as far as I know, the kind of uh, the clauses that I was speaking about there in terms of oral history are still in play. I, I'm open to correction on that. Yeah, my understanding is that the the new the new decade approach, um, the new document actually says that the agreement would be implemented within a hundred days. Uh, I think 100 okay. days may well uh, may may well have passed at uh, at this stage. Uh, right. Let's see. Um, there's a question here from Barbara Curran. Uh, is there an intergenerational aspect uh, to the research? Okay. Um, I th I'll try to answer that um, as best I can, and hopefully I've I've got the the meaning of your question right. Uh, yes, there is an intergenerational aspect to the research we're seeing some of the sort of traumas associated with um with the experience of being vested from your home and, and moved into uh, another part of the city transmitting down into people who feel um feel the same same way about it um so we're seeing the grandchildren of people whose houses were cleared in the 1950s and 60s, um, uh, you know, almost feeling the effects of that today and, and understanding both the effect it had on their grandparents or their parents, um, as well as the effect it has on them then to not be part of a kind of tight knit community. There's a sense of nostalgia here, which is one of the things I didn't uh, get a chance to talk about. Um, Nostalgia kind of get, gets a bad press. Um, it's seen as, you know, almost dangerous in some ways. Um, but there is this kind of nostalgia for working class life from pre-troubles uh, of Ireland um, that people hark back to. Um, and you can see that coming through again now as, as communities have begun to pull together um, during the pandemic. There's a lot of people talking about this is the way it was in the 50s and 60s. You know, so we can see all of those ideas transmitted from generation to generation. Hopefully that answers your question. Okay, thank you, Adrian. Uh, Anna Bryson has uh, pointed out that, uh, in fact, the NIO written ministerial statement of the 18th of March has sort of overtaken the developments uh, from the, the new decade approach. Um, so, uh, I don't know, Anna, if you want to maybe just tell us a little bit more about that, that would be great. Um, uh, there's a, from Robin Kirk, Owen Patterson came to NC, not sure where that is, several years ago to see the Southern Archives. He mainly wanted to know how they dealt with accounts of violence. The news was not great since the Southern Archives stopped responding when anyone mentioned violence. This skews the history, obviously. In the wake of Boston College, what are your thoughts? 
Um, are we talking about the Republic of Ireland here in terms of Southern archives? I'm, I'm not 100% sure there um, what you're getting at in terms, okay. of, terms of violence uh, in the Southern archives. Um, He's meaning North North Carolina, um, oh, okay. the, the US South Jim Crow records. Ah, I see, I see, right, okay. Um, well, I'll respond as best I can in terms of the, the skewing of history in terms of the Boston College um, controversy. Um, there was a lot of commentary at that time um, when the subpoena controversy was at its height around oral history being dead. Um, that phrase was uttered on numerous occasions by various people at the time. Um, and many of us who work in the field of oral history felt it was premature. Um, and that oral history didn't just mean um, the history of, of what was done or who did what to whom during the Troubles. Um, that it wasn't just about getting to the bottom of, of um, acts of violence. Um, that there was much more that, that had been done, was continuing to be done, and would be done in the future. Um, so the Boston College thing has had this massive impact in terms of we probably won't get to the type of history of getting into the detail of violent events that you may have gotten um, elsewhere or had that controversy not taken place. But the richness of the oral history that has been carried out and will be carried out, I would argue, brings us to a an even broader, more representative view of this. Okay, thank you. And I know it's probably a bit frustrating for participants not being able to necessarily come immediately, immediately back. But with the numbers online, I think this is maybe the easiest way to manage things. But feel free, Robin, to drop us another note if you feel you want a clarification. Uh, I have a, a question here from Claire Hackett, um, Adrian, which also maybe links to our last project, which led into. The dairy project um claire says uh, belfast is also very affected by urban development in the 70s e.g the shankill experience this also had a security dimension particularly in west and north belfast was this also the case in dairy thanks claire for that one um yeah i suppose there's always the um the talk of the security force um uh input into planning decisions. Um, that's obviously the case in Belfast. Um, and there is obviously documentary evidence to prove that, that that was the case. It would surprise me if a similar process didn't take place in Derry. Um, but you don't see the kind of um, carving up of, of territory in Derry that you see in Belfast, particularly in North and West Belfast. Um, like the use of industrial zoning um, or the use of new housing estates to actually segregate communities from each other um, and make policing those communities easier for the security forces, which was essentially the, the thinking behind what happened in Belfast. Um, you know, that wasn't as necessary in Derry um, because the, the army was able to surveil the whole city because of its natural um, landscape anyway. Um, there are all sorts of theories, which I haven't found documentary evidence as yet to prove that, you know, newer housing estates in the 70s were built to allow um, uh, military vehicles to to um, to move through the streets more easily and stuff like that. Um, so it's probably there somewhere, um, but I, I can't say definitively that it's the case that 
what happened in Belfast was completely replicated in Derry. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, so a question from uh, Brian Doherty. Um, he wants to know what role do other forms of archiving play in historical context, such as musical archiving, photography, plus how do you actually access minority groups to ensure balance? Thanks, Brian. It's a really great question. Um, I think alternative sources, if, if we're talking about broadening the narrative, alternative sources are essential. So oral history is one element of it, a very important one, I would argue, but it's one element. So you also need the archive. You also need the poetry. You need the literature, um, the music, the photography, um, and even like the, the satire, the comedy, um, anything you can get your hands on really to, to put color into the narrative of, um, of, a, of a divided past, I think is positive. So those kinds of historical sources play a really important role, I would argue. For example, one of the things that we ask people in the oral history interviews is about their senses. So, you know, are there smells or sounds that you know, jog memories for you? Um, what did the what did the area smell like? What did the area sound like? And it opens up a whole other avenue of approach for someone's um, memory of their past. So, yeah. Very important, I would say, to the the role of other forms of uh, archiving and historical sources. Um, reaching hard to uh, hard to access minority groups, it's a difficult thing to do. Um, if you are concentrating on social history, though, um, it does become a little bit easier. Um, people tend to think of social history at a very localized level. Um, rather than a macro level of, of division and conflict. Um, so all of the interviews that we carry out tend to focus on everyday life, the built environment, movement. Um, we do ask some questions about the conflict, but usually it's the interviewee who brings that through um, because the conflict sort of affected every aspect of life here. So. Um, it's a little bit easier to access um, groups who you wouldn't normally um, access uh, in, dealing, in, in oral history research in, in Northern Ireland. Um, but using alternative, alternative means like social media, community organizations, um, even going to pubs and things like that, and um, uh, alternative sort of places that you wouldn't think of going to, to recruit people. Um, can sort of get towards some form of balance. It's difficult to reach that that sweet spot of balance, though, at the same time on any project, regardless of what the content or the topic is. Okay, thanks, Adrian. Um, we have till about four thirty. There's quite a lot of questions lined up here, so I'm just going to keep yeah. working working through them. Um, there's a question here from Lainey Lennox, one of our PhD researchers, and she says. Do you think there's any meaningful opportunity for grassroots oral history archives in Northern Ireland to actually participate in constructing or cultivating the Stormont House Agreement's oral history archive? Or do you think their involvement will stop at simply being included in the archive? Um, the cynic in me would would come in and agree with the latter part of your of your question. 
Um, it would be a pretty big process um, to actually include all of the participants and the stakeholders in oral history uh, practice in Northern Ireland um, to be involved in curating um, and developing the archive. Um, that would be the ideal situation. I think that would be the, the best way to do it. But given that the initial agreement that, sorry, given that in the initial agreement, they gave themselves two years to have this thing up and running. Um, I wouldn't be massively confident that the, the thought process is going down that avenue of, of building it from the ground up. It seems like it's going to be constructed uh, and, and conceptualized uh, at a high level with some consultation, obviously, uh, and then sort of imposed and people can be involved with it then if, if they wish, which would sort of go towards the negative point of my conclusion um, of is this possible, what I'm speaking of, um, within the confines of the Stormont House Agreement or dealing with the past in Northern Ireland? Um, I think I would probably come down on the, the side of, the, of, of, of being quite negative in terms of that. Okay, thank you, Adrian. Yeah, and I think it is a real ongoing issue as to what degree of involvement community groups will have in the archive and how that will be managed and, and given all of the different community archives that exist. Uh, I have a question here from uh, Derek, Derek Moore. Um, he begins the message by saying, looking glass syndrome, if you look into a mirror, you will only see what is behind you. You cannot see through to the other side. Your expectation of the world then is that only resembles yourself and those around you. Are we at risk of continuing to look back instead of looking forward? Great question. Great question. Um, I'd say there's always a risk of, of continuing to look back um, in a destructive way. Um, I suppose what I'm saying here is that there are alternative ways of looking back that actually can, can be more positive for the future. So um, the, uh, one of the aspects of the, of the project um, and Derry is um, that we're we're bringing a, bringing this data together, all of this information we're collecting through oral history archives, photographs, um, and whatever else we can get our hands on, and trying to understand were there positive things about the way the city was in the past, um, in terms of how people maybe interacted, in terms of how people moved around uh, or just lived their lives, um, that we can we can learn from. Um, so we're working with the, the city council uh, and with uh, others to kind of see if we can bring some of that historical information into their future planning documents for the city and region. Uh, and the idea is, you know, we're testing to see if this is a, a viable thing to do. So maybe there are some positives in, in looking back um, at social history rather than looking back at our, our what divides us. Um, and the things that that maybe um, are more emotional and, and divisive. Obviously, we have to do that as well. Um, but uh, I think there, there there's another way of doing it to take the take the sting out of it. Almost, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Uh, so Derek actually posted something else. So I'm going to jump okay. to that and come back to everyone else just while we're on Derek's points. Um, and because he adds the slide at Lecky Road and the comment around failed to mention 
that many Protestants lived around that area and also had to move, mainly due to roadworks. And he wants to know, does your personal makeup, so I presume that's your political perspective, uh, color the perspective slightly? Um, I wouldn't say so. Um, I think the time I had might have colored the presentation uh, slightly. Um, I'd like to think, I, I am from a nationalist background, I'm happy to say that. Um, and make no bones about that. Um, but I don't think that that colours my perspective on, on history or the research that I do. Um, you know, there are a large number of interviews being carried out with people from the Fountain area, from people who lived in that, that part of the Leckie Road and Long Tower as well. Um, and we obviously are very aware of the fact that many people had to move for various reasons, whether it was because of redevelopment or because of uh, intimidation um, or the atmosphere in the city um, when the troubles began um, and, and developed in the 70s. Um, so there are obviously lots of sensitive issues um, when you're looking at housing regeneration and its impact on a city like Derry. Um, and hopefully through this research, um, when we begin to write it up and um, present it in a more thorough form, um, you'll see that it's there are multiple narratives emerging from it. Um, I would say that today, obviously, I didn't have the time or chance to do that. Um, but perhaps maybe my choice of what I did speak about says something about me, but I'm not sure. I should add that Derek has just posted, thank you. I have participated in your project and it was worthwhile. So that's a, a positive response to that. Um, so uh, Anna has uh, Anna Bryson has very usefully posted some information up there uh, when we were talking about the hundred day issue and the Stormont House Agreement um, and the the ministerial brief. She says proposes that we need to shift the focus of our approach to the past and consider one independent body to oversee a new joined up approach. It remains to be seen to what extent this represents a departure from the commitments made in the Stormont House Agreement. Uh, more recently promised in terms of moving the legislation forward in a hundred days. Um, Anna's also very usefully put up a link there. Anyone can see it. Um, her and some colleagues have uh, written a piece which uh, outlines some of that and some of the challenges. So I'd encourage people to have, have a look at that. Um, I have a question here from Anna Maria Rodriguez Gomez um, and she asks, as space change or uh, affectation might be considered as a manner of conflict how to deal with it and have the research uh, showed any results on how oral history might help uh, to rebuild the social fabric that's clear adrian yeah uh thanks to anna bryson for those uh for that information that's very helpful um anna maria um to answer your question um yes i suppose that is uh, a, a, a a type of conflict, a type of violence in some ways. Um, you know, this process was in particular to Belfast or Derry. Um, you know, the urban renewal, urban regeneration process happened across North America um, and large parts of Britain, most of Britain at the same time. Um, and it's, you know, the histories of the histories of those places, when we look at it, it's seen as a form of violence, a form of uh, conflict between class, between race, between races, uh, and, a, and a means of segregating people even further. So there's obviously a, a conflict there that has to be dealt with. 
Now, how we do that is kind of, I wouldn't say it's as difficult as dealing with the legacy of the conflict, but we are dealing with changes to the structures of cities that are permanent. Um, we can't go back to what was there before. Even if we do, it won't be the same as what was existing. Um, and we have, some of what we have is just, just there now. So we have, to, we have to find ways of maybe softening its impact. Um, and perhaps oral history is a, is a way to do that. Um, and perhaps the, the, the data that we are collecting is a way to do that because we can see some of the more acute impacts of, of infrastructure, for example, um, and, and top-down planning and how they, how they impact on social fabric on the cohesiveness of communities. Um, so perhaps there's a way that we can take this data and come up with, you know, ideas for how we we um, create connections um, and make make cities more livable, more walkable, and just better places to live. That's the intention, anyway. I think with the project is to try this in a city like Derry, um, and if it works there, in terms of you know, some positive outcomes with, with urban design and, and social cohesion. We can sort of look at doing it elsewhere um, on top of that. Okay, thanks, Adrian. Um, I have essentially two comments, so I'm going to read those out just so they're on the, the record because we'll keep an audio record of this and publish it afterwards. And then one more question, and I think I'm going to end on that. Um, so I'm just going to read the two comments. Uh, you may want to comment on them, Adrian, but, but they're more like points, I think. Okay. Uh, the first is from Sean Feenan, and he says, there is an issue around partiality, as you stated in your presentation. Uh, an example in uh, Jasenovac in Croatia, there is a museum at a site of a death camp. The stories told for decades were about the victims and the state required all students to visit it, etc. Nowadays, and I think he's meaning in former Yugoslavia, nowadays we have a new regime in Croatia that tells the stories of survivors, people who have kinder stories to tell about World War II regime responsible for the death camp. This does not help reconciliation and has led to division over commemoration, etc. I think any of us who live in Northern Ireland will recognize uh, the challenge of those type of historical uh partiality issues that, that create tensions um is there anything you want to add adrian or just hear the other comments uh just one thing very briefly um that's allied to that um i've, I've always been um you know a proponent of of addressing the past as it faces us i don't i don't like the idea of sanitizing things or glossing over things um when it comes to the the conflict and the divisions in society here um and and my my proposition or my championing of, of social history isn't isn't um, a means of trying to gloss over division or or um, you know lessen the impact of, of sort of tragic things that happened in the past. It's more about trying to understand things in their whole words and all um, uh, context, um, rather than get towards some kind of a shared history that maybe isn't reality. Um, I'm, I'm not not pr proposing that in any way, shape or form. Okay, thanks, Adrian. Uh, so a comment also from Ken Funston. Uh, he says the structures suggest that in the Stormont House Agreement were never fit for purpose and the design team never engaged with the victims groups. Hence, what we have is something that is created with an ideological thought process and could never be agreed by innocent victims. It's time to look again at what has been proposed 
Um, and he then adds, I agree with Anna to a certain extent, the ICIR is total nonsense and the role of the HIU could never meet the needs of all of those and will hinder reconciliation. So I think Ken's really just going into um, what uh, his views on the Stormont House Agreement. Anna has added that uh, that was not what she said exactly. So I think I should certainly say that. I know it's difficult on the on the text, but I think Ken is sharing his views on the Stormont House Agreement. Um, and uh, I'm sure many, many of us have written and said there are certainly challenges in relation to the Stormont House Agreement. But uh, I just wanted to note that Anna, Anna's response to that as well. Um, I might just take the last uh, question then. Uh, what are the risks with re-traumatizing, sorry, it's from someone called Jeremy. I don't have a second name. What are the risks with re-traumatizing victims in oral history uh, during ongoing conflict or conflicts with an asymmetry of power relations such as Israel, uh, Palestine? There are obviously, obviously risks. Um, uh, I think those risks have to be um, assessed obviously before engagement in any kind of project um, that goes into conflict using oral history. Um, it's oral history as a, as a democratizing um, methodology. Anyone can essentially do it if you've got a well everyone has a tape recorder in their pocket now so that's the other kind of uh, big change we've seen in the last 10 years is that you can record and disseminate an oral history uh, from anywhere in the world now so anyone can do this the other thing is that there is an there's a certain amount of training you need to do oral history um, as well as you possibly can do it but then there's this additional need for consideration um, around ethics when you're talking about conflict and and issues that can re-traumatize people so i think anyone engaging in oral history projects that, that deal with these kind of issues um, you know, need to really thoroughly think about what they're doing before they before they go into it, and the needs of the needs of the research, the needs of society um, to have that research have to be weighed up against the personal consequences for the the interviewee. Um, and this is a, a balancing act that I suppose all research in, in conflict situations comes across, um, but it's particularly acute in oral history because of the potential for re-traumatization. Um, Brandon's probably got uh, something to say on that as well, not to put you on the spot, but I'm guessing that's the kind of thing that, um, that you've actually dealt with in, in reality, Brandon. Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of my work has deal dealt with the issue of, of re-traumatization and that's something we've talked about in this project. Um, probably in the interest of time, I won't go into it uh, too much or turn it into uh, my seminar, but I think it is an, a really important issue. Um, at the same time, you know, many victims are living with issues themselves and uh, have to do that on a daily basis. Um, and so that's also also a real challenge. Um, so I might actually just leave it there. It's now close to to 4:30. Um, there's a little bit more discussion going on on the on the the chat, which I think is fine. Um, but I wanted to really just thank Adrian uh, for a great seminar and it's really, really uh, informative with a lot of detail in it. Um, I wanted to also specifically thank Healing Through Remembering. Uh, this has been a long road to get the seminar series off the ground because of the, the challenges that have been thrown our way with COVID and other 
other issues. So it's glad that we're we're glad to hear we're off the ground. Um, Kate, I didn't know. Did you want to say anything by way of thanks? Yeah, I just um, again wanted to thank Adrian for um, this. Isn't what we initially invited him to to do, and thank everyone at the university for setting this up so that we could actually have something it's uh not perhaps the um fully interactive opportunity we were hoping to have but it's great that we've been able to um engage with each other and and talk on this um subject i think particularly you know in relation to some of what adrian said and um laney laney lennox's comment just to mention that at healing through remembering we host the Stories Network, which is a range of projects that are gathering um, oral histories uh, relating to the conflict and um, a kind of originally started as a kind of support and information, but um, has now become quite a strong, um, diverse voice um, that is trying to feed into whatever might happen on this. Um, so it's just to, to try and keep us all alert to that. I think the um, only other thing to, to say, Brandon, um, is that uh, this is a series. Um, the next one is on Monday the 18th of May when Professor uh, Siobhan O'Neill, a professor of mental health sciences, will talk on the need for a trauma-informed approach to addressing the, the conflict's legacy. Um, so uh, to give you all a heads up about that. Thank you. And and thank you everybody for, for taking part. Yeah, no, thanks, Kate. And great minds, minds think alike. I just posted onto the chat the, the link to the next seminar for those who are interested. Uh, I just want to thank TJI and Incor. There's always staff behind these types of events. Um, so thank you to them. And thanks again to HDR, to Adrian, for all of you, um, over 100 people who came in. Um, we are still learning about how to use this technology, um, so if you have any suggestions for how we might improve it for next time, feel free to drop those uh, into the, the text box. Uh, we'd be really happy to hear from you. Uh, but thanks everybody for joining. I'll leave the, the text running just for another five minutes or so in case there is anything else um, anybody wanted to add. But thanks again, Adrian. Thanks everybody. And uh, we, we hope to be hearing from you all soon and seeing you at our next seminar. Thanks. Thanks everyone.